This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. Monday was Thanksgiving Day in Canada. It was also World Mental Health Day. According to the Center of Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, one in five Canadians experience mental illness in any given year. And by the time Canadians reach the age of 40, one in two has either had or is experiencing mental illness. Given these numbers, mental illness is common and perhaps more of a shared experience than we realize. Bob Comsick filled in for Libby on Monday and was joined by Dr. Keith Dobson to discuss. Dr. Dobson is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary and past president of the Canadian Psychological Association. Oftentimes we think about mental health as a continuum, so mental health, positive mental health on the one end and mental illness at the far end. But of course, there are many different shades of gray in the middle, people struggling with short-term issues or even sometimes chronic illness, you know, concerns that they have. So there's quite a bit of uh, difference. The other thing is we do have formal definitions of mental illness, and there are many different forms of mental illness. So yes, there's lots of different ways to experience this problem. And to say that there's necessarily a predominant uh, one in either category, not so much, or? Um, Well, again, if we look at the epidemiology of mental illness, we do know that there are some common conditions. So anxiety disorders, depression, substance use are certainly the, the main three that we see in Canada. But there are a wide range of other kinds of conditions that people can have as well. What should we do to protect and improve mental health? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I think that that's the important part of this discussion. So the World Health Organization has designated this as World Mental Health Day. And again, they're, they've done this for two reasons. One is to recognize that people do struggle and, and do have mental illness on the one side, but also to really help us to think about and promote our mental health. Uh, when we think about the promotion side or the prevention side, uh, what I tend to do is think about the what we call biopsychosocial framework. So we look at the biological, psychological, and social aspects of being a person and think about all of these domains and the things that we can do. So biological things we can do, eating healthy, exercising, um, you know, sleeping as best we can, you know, sort of taking care of our bodies. Uh, so that's critical. Psychologically, you know, being thankful for the things that we can be thankful for, getting engaged, you know, thinking about the future, planning in as positive way as we can, um, you know, sort of basically, you know, thinking about ourselves in a positive direction. And then socially, being connected. We know that social connection is a critical aspect of mental health. And so whether we're doing it for ourselves or helping other people to be connected, it doesn't really matter. But the social aspect is, is critical. An estimated one in eight people around the world living with a mental disorder. That was in 2019. One in yeah. eight people. So we're talking, what, about a billion people? 
Correct. about a billion people. And at the same time, this is the, the WHO saying this, at the same time, services, skills, funding available for mental health remain in short supply, fall far below what's needed, especially in low and middle income countries. What about in countries such as ours, Dr. Dobson? Yeah. Yeah, so the issue of access to mental health services has been recognized as a significant problem by every major group, the Mental Health Commission of Canada, the Canadian Psychiatric Association, Canadian Psychological Association. So we have known for a long time that access to services is not adequate. Uh, so, uh, you know, and as bad as we are, like you've just said, uh, in low and middle income countries, the situation is much, much worse. But, but access has been a real problem. The other thing that's important to note is that during the pandemic, because the statistics you're talking about are pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic but, right? Yeah, but during the pandemic, rates of anxiety, depression, substance oh. use have approximately doubled, uh, even higher in some age groups. Uh, so actually, for low older adults, uh, it has not been as bad as for younger adults. But the rates of mental health challenges have gone up significantly. So one of the things that has happened, and, and this is one of the silver linings, and there aren't very many of the pandemic, but one of them is because of the need for physical distancing, we've done a lot of shifting towards virtual care. So telephone or web-based uh, kinds of services. And one of the advantages of that model is, of course, you can reach a lot of people that you wouldn't be able to reach otherwise. And so we have seen an increase in access. And we do expect that coming out of the pandemic that some of this access will maintain. But the need is still much, much greater than the available services. Dr. Keith Dobson, professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary and past president of the Canadian Psychological Association. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Canada's Minister of Sport says Hockey Canada must continue to transition to a new leadership team. Pascal Saint-Ange made the comments a day after Andrea Skinner resigned as interim chair of Hockey Canada's board of directors and before the entire board of directors and CEO resigned on Tuesday. Skinner stepped down after testifying before Parliament's Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage, where she vigorously defended the National Sports Organization's leadership group. She and her predecessor, Michael Brinda Moore, were questioned by committee members over Hockey Canada's ongoing handling of an alleged group sex assault involving members of the 2018 men's national junior team and how settlements in lawsuits have been paid out. On Monday, ahead of the group resignation, Bob Comsick was joined by Dr. Richard LeBlanc, Professor of Governance, Law, and Ethics at York University. Bob first asked Dr. LeBlanc about his thoughts on Andrea Skinner's resignation. She never should have been chair in the first place. She didn't have the proper mindset during the testimony. And as a result of the testimony, provinces and, and sponsors pulled out en masse um, the chair should have been independent um, from management, um, and she had a, a defensive, someone somewhat arrogant attitude, and it, it, uh, and and she she didn't she didn't really exhibit independence or an appreciation of how serious these issues are. So her resignation is nice, but it's it's largely immaterial. 
You you pointed out that, and we'll get back to as far as replacement and uh, and everything else. But with the sponsors pulling out uh, various provincial or hockey organizations, breaking off relationships, stopping uh, payments, uh, why are they doing this? Or is it uh, as obvious as the noses on our face? Well, it's it's reputational preservation for the sponsors and not wanting to be contagious. Con- contagious with an organization that is uh, is is not producing books and records. There have been allegations of of uh, of jewelry uh, of of uh, large televisions crossing the table of uh, liquor uh, expense accounts uh, 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 credit cards and some of this could constitute if it's in a procurement situation could constitute bribery and, and an infraction under the criminal code. And if directors are receiving these uh, these luxury items, then that compromises their independence. And that the it, it just strikes me that there's something about this board that is that the, the, either they're captured in some way or they're not. There there's there's something else here. And uh, the, 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 they have announced this morning that they are they meaning the Hockey Canada executives are. Now suing the federal government, if you can believe this, for for not uh, for not be, uh, compa- being compelled to produce financial disclosure. So there's there's something else here that 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 I think would explain uh, the the board's uh, uh, loyalty to to management. And I think that that the sponsors and the provinces have just had enough, and they just don't want their brand diminished um, uh, by the continued intransigence of, of uh, management of Hockey Canada. And I've helped sporting organizations and their boards, and they tend not to have proper compliance, which is uh, a code of conduct, a whistleblowing policy, um, an alcohol policy, an anti-grooming policy. When you drop your kids off at the rink, male or female, uh, you, you want to be assured that, 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 that these types of compliance issues pu- push down into the level of of uh, all across the country, and I think that this that this board is missing a, uh, an opportunity to to come clean and to say we get it and and uh, we, we will implement the following reforms. That you know, you you look at the board, and not only do they not have financial literacy, they don't have governance experience. Um, almost all of them are are are, are hockey uh, re- related to the sport of hockey, um, and that tells me that they're too close to the sport and they don't have independence of, from it, and they they don't have governance and financial expertise. All all these things, whistleblowing, alcohol, anti grooming, these are all best practices, and you wouldn't know that if you're not trained on governance and financial literacy. So I think there's opportunities here for some some serious reform, but the board has to look inward and and. Ultimately, the, the the number one job of a board is to hire, fire, and pay uh, senior management. So senior management needs to go if they're if they're now contemplating suing the federal government. I mean, you've got the wrong senior management, and I just don't think this board is up to it. So we will see where this where this falls out, but um, this will not end well. We've got the in- involvement of the prime minister, the sporting minister. Um, this is a matter of our national pride. This is not something that a management team or or a board can win. Dr. Richard LeBlanc, Professor of Governance, Law and Ethics at York University. He was in conversation with Bob Comsick the day before the entire board of directors and CEO at Hockey Canada resigned.
You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, does Danielle Smith's coronation as Alberta's premier signal a new sovereignty movement? We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The weekly conversation with Fight Back's Recovering Politicians panel began with the politics of Alberta, where Danielle Smith has been sworn in as that province's 19th premier. Smith is the former head of the right-wing Wild Rose Party. She has promised to challenge the federal carbon tax and introduce an Alberta Sovereignty Act that would reject federal laws deemed against the province's interests. This has some people wondering if Alberta is the new Quebec. Libby discussed the development with Lisa Raitt, former deputy leader of the federal conservatives, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, and Howard Hampton, former leader of the Ontario New Democrats. Look, these things were very successful in terms of appealing to the uh, Conservative Party uh, grassroots. Now, how this is going to sell in places like Edmonton and Calgary, where there's a much broader political spectrum, uh, and how it's going to sell uh, when even energy corporations, all right, want they want to move forward with something, they don't want to get caught in the middle of a federal provincial dust up that can take months, maybe years, uh, to go to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, and be heard. So. You know, this may have been really attractive for the partisans of the Conservative Party in Alberta, in particular the partisans in rural Alberta. I don't know how this is going to sell, one, in the corporate world, especially in the resource world, and how it's going to sell in cities like Calgary and Edmonton, where your interests are are much broader and where you're very much part of the Canadian economy not just the Alberta economy. Charles, what do you think? Is yeah, Alberta I, the new Quebec? Yeah, I think Howard makes a great point. It's one of the reasons I guess she's not seeking a seat in Calgary, but a more safe seat in rural you know, medicine hat. Um, and she has, I guess, reversed her tone, uh, saying that she, you know she will abide by the courts and so forth. So I'm not sure what kind of teeth this new Sovereignty Act will have. But yeah, I, I think it'll create some chaos. And it is, I think... A, you know, I, I always question Quebecers, you know, any, any one of us. Are we Albertans first or are we Canadians first, right? Are we Ontarians first or are we Canadians first? I mean, most of us, I think, see ourselves as Canadian, and, and there's regional disparities and equalization programs that enable us to you know, safeguard the interests of all of Canada. And so the Sovereignty Act goes right against that. It's a bit glitzy, and it gives uh, the, the new premier a little bit of profile, but I don't know how they're going to implement it. And I don't know what kind of special moments or occasions by which they would initiate the act that would be appropriate. I just, I don't see it. Lisa, you're a conservative. Uh, what do you think when you see a move like this, uh, conservatives moving further and further away from the center? 
it's not only moving further away from the center. I mean, Howard and Charles have already laid this out very clearly, which is the one thing that investments hate is uncertainty. And now they're introducing a whole level of uncertainty as to what regulations are going to be at play in the province of Alberta. And quite frankly, we don't have time for this. Like, we have so much investment that is needed in order to get us to net zero. What we need to do is make sure that people are rowing in the right direction. So, no, I don't think it's helpful. But I'm also not an Albertan, Libby. And Albertans are frustrated with carbon tax. They're frustrated with no access to tidewater. And they're just frustrated in general that they feel that they're not given the ability to develop their natural resources, which they own. This is how it's manifesting through a sovereignty act, which will be tied up in court for ever. And it leads uncertainty. And, you know, it's, it's a shame, really. It's a shame. The election will come and we'll see whether or not the majority of Albertans agree with the direction that the United Conservative Party is taking them. I think uh, Ms. Smith is is going to be positioned as saying, I want the world to go back to the way it was, uh, and uh, we don't want to cooperate with the rest of Canada. I think that that becomes untenable because the fact of the matter is, to solve any of those issues that Alberta has, in other words, to move oil to tidewater, in other words, to uh, continue to use natural gas as we bridge to the greater use of electricity and hydrogen, is going to require the cooperation of the rest of Canada. And and simply saying, well, we're going to shut you out or we're going to shut you down. We're not going to cooperate, we in Alberta. I don't think, I don't see where that's a winning proposition, a winning equation for Alberta. Howard Hampton, former leader of the Ontario NDP, Lisa Raitt, former deputy leader of the Federal Conservatives, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, Fight Back's Recovering Politicians panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and the president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists is saying that breast cancer screening all across the country should be expanded to include women in their 40s, and that the current guidelines are costing lives. Currently, only four provinces, excluding Ontario, offer mammograms to women of average risk in the younger cohort. Dr. David Jacobs is a radiologist at Humber River Hospital in Toronto and president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists. He joined Libby on Tuesday to discuss whether breast cancer screening should be made widely available to women 40 and older. What happened years ago is uh, women were pre-screened with uh, breast examinations by nurses before being put into either the control arm or the screening arm. And what was happening was these nurses were finding breast cancers through palpation and then putting them into the screening arm uh, because they didn't want these women to go uh, undiagnosed. So what ended up happening is you ended up putting a lot of patients who were uh, who already had uh, palpable uh, breast cancers or more advanced breast cancers uh, into the screening group, and then the screening group makes out, and then as a result, it looks like screening uh, patients doesn't result in in good outcomes because you have so many cancers that have been put into that group. So it uh, it was a flawed study, um, and as a result, uh, we have had a very 
bad policy which costs uh, 13 lives a month in Ontario uh, for women under the age of 50. How many uh, breast cancers are found in women between the ages of 40 and 50? So 17% of breast cancers are found uh, in women in their 40s, and it represents 27% of life years lost to breast cancer. And the median age of diagnosis of fatal breast cancers is actually 49. So starting at 50, we're missing half of the fatal breast cancers. Uh, That doesn't make a lot of sense for a screening program. Okay, so this is a population screening program. It doesn't include people of high risk. Women of high risk uh, can get screened uh, when they are a lot younger. So mm-hmm. um, isn't it mostly women at high risk who who contract breast cancer younger? Oh, certainly not. So your risk of contracting breast cancer when you're younger is much higher in the high-risk groups but that high-risk group still only makes up about 8% of the women between 40 and 49 who do develop breast cancer. So their individual risk is much higher than the general population, but they still make up the smallest number, you know, less than 10% of the women who will get breast cancer. So we're missing a lot of women. Have you had any kind of response from the province? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. We've we had a really good discussion with uh, both Ontario Health and with the Ministry of Health. The Ministry of Health uh, was very open um, and uh, is going to take these issues back and look at them. Um, and uh, they seem to be quite interested in this. Um, Ontario Health is more or less. Uh, from what we've seen to this point, sticking to their guns, they are focusing on uh, one study out of Europe that supports their position, and they're also looking at the older study and and hanging their hat on that one. So it's um, interesting to me uh, that that's how the, that that that's their position that they're taking. When the largest group of radiologists uh, out there, the ones who really set the standard of care for North America and the world, that's the American College of Radiologists, they've already said, no, we need to start screening at 40. Uh, So it's, uh, you know, we've got the government, uh, the Ford government seems interested in in this and and in making adjustments. Uh, The Ontario Health is digging their heels in a bit, but we hope that they come around to the data as it is. Dr. David Jacobs, a radiologist at Humber River Hospital in Toronto and president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Sita in Mississauga phoned with her thoughts on the Hockey Canada scandal. 
So Hockey Canada not only need to change the board and look into sexual misconduct, changes that should have been done since the Maple Leaf incident, but also also need to look into discrimination to women and colored players, a chance not only to be into the league, but on, on the board also. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Margaret in Etobicoke, who phoned to talk about her experience with City of Toronto services as the municipal election approaches. I'm a blind person. I use the Wheeltrans system here in Toronto, and the big problem we're having right now is the what they call the family of services. The idea is it's supposed to give people a choice, you know, about how they want to travel, whether they feel safer traveling from door to door in a vehicle or whether they want to be able to use the conventional TT system, TTC system, which is buses and that kind of thing. But here's the problem. A lot of people don't get that choice. A lot of people get told, no, you can only have the door to door at this time of the day or that time of the day. I think people, number one, should have the choice of what vehicle they want. And number two, I don't know how, how what the answer is to coordinate the rest of the stuff. But, I mean, it's it's a very frustrating program to use, and I'd appreciate it if somebody out there would kind of look into that. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.